Well, good morning, and for those of you who are visiting or are new here, uh, my name is Rob Gray. I'm the pastor here at CCPC, and I'm going to tell you I'm an elder. <laughs> That's an awkward thing. I don't, I don't say that uh, to, to puff myself up, but I say that because uh, we're in the process of, of bolstering the ranks of the elders, those who oversee uh, this church, who shepherd this flock, and we're, we're opening up nominations in a few weeks and because of that, uh, I, I thought it prudent, wise, to preach through this small little letter uh, to Titus. Uh, we're looking at Titus this week, Titus chapter 1, and the qualifications for elder. Um, as I mentioned last week, uh, we are going to be uh, opening up nominations in a couple weeks. So we're going to look at the qualifications for elder this week. Next week, we'll look at 1 Timothy and the qualifications for deacon. And then following that, we'll open up nominations. Uh, some of you were in Sunday school last week, and we kind of worked through some of our Presbyterianism and Presbyterian polity. And that may be unfamiliar to some of you, I recognize. And if you have questions, please don't hesitate to ask. I'm not going to go into sort of our polity in this sermon, only in this regard, that we believe that God has appointed elders to rule over, to watch over, to shepherd the church. In every local body, there ought to be men set aside for that work to care for the congregation. And so with that, uh, we're looking at those qualifications here in Titus uh, chapter 1. You can follow along with me in your bulletins, Titus 1, verses 5 to 16. It's printed there in your bulletin, or you can follow along in your Bibles. Hear God's word. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences, consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Once again, Lord, I ask for your help. And I tremble at your word. Be gracious to us. Raise up for us leaders. Leaders that love you, love your word, who serve. And so, Lord, help us to see what what they look like as we look at your word today. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you all uh, consider calling men to help lead Christ Church here at CCPC, uh, I want you to consider the weight, the weight, or the weightiness of what you're asking someone to do, right? So what you're going to do is when you go come to nominate somebody, you're going to ask that person, may I nominate you? And I want you to consider what it is you're asking them to do. Um, I, I, have to, I have to be honest, and maybe this will help us sort of get at the weightiness of this. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delve a little bit into my own psyche, just for a moment, something I'm not really very comfortable. If you feel my discomfort right now, it's because I'm not comfortable in doing this sort of thing. Um, but I want to get in a little bit into my psyche about my own sense of call and becoming an elder or pastor here at CCPC. To start, I have to admit, uh, I didn't want to preach this text this morning. I didn't want to come here and, and preach this. Um, from the moment I sensed an inward call to gospel ministry, this is some years ago, right? But back when I was in college, in my early 20s, uh, I knew immediately, viscerally, I sensed this, this desire, this burden, this call, this love for the church, but I knew intensely that I was not qualified to be an elder or to be a pastor in Christ's church. And, I, and I'm not trying to lay out false humility. I know somebody say, oh, I know, I'm not worthy. I'm not trying to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm being honest. I had an intense dread and fear back then. And I would say that continues to this day. An intense dread and fear, knowing that I don't measure up to the standards that we see here in this passage and in 1 Timothy. They terrify me. So I confess to you that I'm not comfortable preaching the text, and yet here I am. This is God's, this is God's word for you today. So here it is. And often when I work through a text, any text, my goal, my, my, my aim in each text that I come to in God's word is to find the gospel thread. Because I believe that there is a gospel thread in every text of God's word. It may not be explicit, but it is implicit, especially as it sits within the context of the whole of scripture. But as I came to this and I wrestled with this text over the past week, and I was looking for this thread, this gospel thread, as I wrestled with God and his word, I initially came up empty-handed. I sat there, I read the text, worked through it in the Greek, talked to myself, prayed with God, Lord, what, where is the gospel thread in this? Initially, I came up empty-handed. And I think it was God's way of letting his word unsettle me and disrupt me. So that fear and dread that I've felt over the years 
filled my heart. Who is worthy of such a task? To be God's God's agent, God's servant, God's steward of the mysteries of God and the gospel, and to care for other people's souls and have watch care over them. Who is worthy of such a task? It's a looming question that comes out of this text. And as you look around at the church, and even as you examine those of us who are already in office, Matt, John, John, myself, You might wonder, where do we find faithful servants, faithful shepherds? The Lord indicated that the shepherds of Israel uh, were not faithful. He indicted them in the prophet Jeremiah. At one point he says, many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Later on in Jeremiah, he says that early in Jeremiah, chapter 12. Later in chapter 23, he says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. He was condemning the elders of the Old Testament, if you will. Who of us is worthy of such a task? And let me tell you, the short answer is none of us. Not one of us. But as I wrestled with this text a little longer, hope emerged. That gospel thread started to glimmer through the text, and I want us to see it, particularly here in verse 9, because this is the heart of what I want us to see this morning. Here in verse 9, this is again in the qualification section, but it said, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And he gives reason so that he can teach. But I want us to think just for just a minute. Of course, an elder must be able to to teach. He ought not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. He must hold fast to the word of God for that purpose. But there's another reason that he must hold fast to the word of God, the word of truth. Because in that word is life itself. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ holding fast to that hope of the gospel for the elder. So even before we begin, I'll tell you the number one piece of information you are looking for when you think of who is qualified. Is this a man who understands his desperate need for Jesus and clings fast to that gospel hope? But this isn't just a word for elders, right? This is a word for each and every one of us. The elder holds fast to the word, and he tells us all then to hold fast to that trustworthy word. Hold firm to it, believer. That's your call. And then we're going to look at this just in two parts. I'm going to walk through the qualifications, but before we get to the qualifications, the first thing I want to say is this. Letting go of the truth, not holding fast, is to let go of God. And we see that in our text. We're going to see that in the second portion of this text. So letting go of the truth is to let go of God. And then the next thing that we're going to look at is this idea of holding fast. Appoint men who hold fast. You hold fast uh, to this trustworthy word. But first, let's look at the negative, the very negative picture we have, the, the contrast, if you will, to this, this list of qualifications. 
It begins in uh, verse 10. In verse 10 and following, we have a picture of the Cretan church, the church of Crete. Last week, I already described a little bit to you about the nature and world of Crete. It was not a pretty picture. Here in Crete, you had those people uh, who, you know, reveled in sort of their, um, their sin, you might say. They were liars. They were gluttons. Uh, they were... Um, they, they, they prided themselves in being sort of a rough lot, if you will. This was the Cretan way. But here, what's interesting in the text that we see here is the text is not talking about the Cretans out there, right? He's not talking about all the Cretans that are wandering around, living life how they want to live it. Liars, cheats, gluttons, the sexually immoral, all of it. Um, but he's looking, the Apostle Paul is looking at the church of Crete particularly. And he's saying, this is what's in your midst. It ought not to be. What's in their midst? Well, there are many, it says, the text says, who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Um, and then we have a list. Uh, we have that description of the Cretan. Uh, he puts these, these teachers that are in the midst of the church within the context of the Cretan community around, around them. And he says, therefore, Titus, rebuke them sharply <laughs> so that they might be sound in the faith. But I want to look at the Cretans a little more closely. First, they seem to be uh, in the church, and there are multiple churches. We see that there are churches throughout the, the, the towns of Crete. That's why the Apostle Paul says to Titus, go appoint them in every town. So there are these churches in every town. And within these churches, there seems to be those uh, who are influenced heavily by the Cretan world around them, the Greek sort of corrupted world around them, but they are also Jewish. So we know that the early church, and much of the early church, uh, was established within the context of the synagogue or came out of the synagogue. So, so Greeks and Jews came and started to follow Jesus, and they came together. We know that there was conflict because of this within the early church, even with Paul himself, because the, the Jewish converts were concerned about those old ceremonial laws. So we'll read in a book like Galatians, in the letter, the letter to the Galatians, how they were teaching them to go back to those Old Testament ways. In fact, Titus here is mentioned in the book of Galatians because of this very issue. Paul travels to Jerusalem at one point in his ministry to meet with all the elders, all the, all the leaders of the church to resolve some issues within the church, one of which was these, these Jewish Christians who were saying, you must follow all the Old Testament rituals and laws. And Paul in Galatians says, I, when I went to Jerusalem, I brought Titus with me, and Titus was not circumcised. It was a, it was, he was almost like a a. a, a, a point of uh, uh, illustration when he went into the assembly to say he is one of us and in the end 
Paul says, I even had to confront Peter to his face because he was unwilling to eat with uh, the the Greek Christians. They had put them on two different levels. So this was a problem in the early church. And here in Crete, it seems to be a problem as well. But mixed in with this sort of return to Old Testament Jewish ceremonial laws, the irony is that these leaders that have come in to disrupt the church are not, not only... Uh, following, they're following these Jewish customs, but their lives are morally bankrupt. They were Jewish, and yet they didn't seem to stand out in terms of their moral character, maybe in terms of their purity. So, so it gives a little picture of this, of this group of people. But I want to see a little more closely how they're described, um, these disruptors of the church. And, and Paul does not hold back at all in our text. The first description is that they're insubordinate. They're unwilling to put themselves under authority. Now, it's interesting, Paul Paul views them as part of the church because in a few verses later, he's going to say, rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in the faith. His hope is that you can win them over with godly authority in place, rebuking with the word of God that they might be won over. But as it stands, these men are insubordinate, unwilling to put themselves under authority. Not only that, they're empty talkers and deceivers. Um, They were probably caught up in Jewish myths and Old Testament genealogies. They were those that just liked to get into the mix of things that were not central or not even not knowable, that they were speculative in their, in their talking. They might have been, some scholars think they might have been, sort of interested in this idea of Gnosticism or knowledge, secret knowledge, that if you come listen to us, we have the real truth. You don't need to listen Uh, to the Apostle Paul and the like, come, we've got the secret knowledge about what the Old Testament really says and really means. They were empty talkers, and they were deceivers, which which was a mark of the Cretan church. They were of the circumcision party, as I've already mentioned. Those who taught that to be a Christian, you must follow Old Testament ceremonial law. Interestingly, later on in this section, Paul will say, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their consciences are defiled. What's Paul saying? He uses a little um, proverb here. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving. I think he's picking up the Lord Jesus' own teaching. When in the Gospels he says, you know, you worry yourselves about you know, making sure your hands are clean and all the vessels you have are clean. The real problem stands is that your hearts are unclean and what comes out of you is actually what defiles you, not what, not what you do with your hands. So Paul is picking up this teaching and he's saying, this is what these men are like. They're impure. They're defiled. They are so worried about making sure that you're circumcised and you follow the purity laws and they don't recognize the problem in their own hearts. They teach what they ought not to teach. Not only do they not have sound doctrine, 
Not only do they teach false things, but they don't even have the right to teach. They're not those who've been appointed to teach. And I want to come back to that at the end, at this point, as we think about how, how this picture contrasts with what, um, what we read in the beginning about what an approved worker looks like. And not only this, but they do this for shameful gain. So the real motivations for these men, and they would come, maybe they were traveling around, and they would say, hey, I've got a secret word for you. If you just give me X amount of money, I will let you in on this little secret. What it means to be truly righteous and godly. But the truth is that they are Cretan at heart. And he ends this picture saying that they, their hearts are defiled. There's nothing pure in them. Their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. We're going to look later at the heart of this text, which I think is these men who hold fast to the trustworthy word. Here are men who pretend to know God, but instead of holding fast, They live how they want to live. They do what they want to do. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is an extreme description. This is not a description, if you will, of sort of, you know, here's what you ought not to to, to elect as an elder. Um, It does stand in contrast but these men were not elders. They were not, they were not leaders of the church by any authority. They had put themselves up as authority, but they are themselves not appointed men. So when we see this picture, it seems very extreme. Um, I think we can think, well, of course we're not going to elect anybody like these Cretans. Yes, let me, let me rephrase that. Don't elect and nominate anybody who's a Cretan. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good start baseline thing to do. Um, don't, don't do that. But I don't, think, I don't think that is at the heart of this section. There are two things that I, I want to note. This is an extreme picture of, of the sort of nature of the Cretan church. But I, I think there are two things that I want to note that I think will encourage you. And the first is this. The problem here in Crete was, there to, was that there were no elders. There were no shepherds. Titus was left there to do the work of of appointing shepherds. And of course, he's only one man and he has to go around from town to town. And here was the problem. There were no shepherds or elders to protect the flock, to care for it. And what happens when there's no elders and no leaders to protect the flock? Nobody overseeing the church. What happens? Well, then... Those who are seeking power and glory and money and their own self-interest bubble up to the surface. People take advantage when there are nobody, when there are no leadership in place. And what I want to say is that in this picture, whole families are being upset. And as I look at CCPC, I want to encourage you. You have men whom God has called watching over you, protecting you. And that's good news. Like, I, as I look at the text and as I think about us raising up new elders, 
I want us to just stop and praise God for those whom he has entrusted with the gospel for your sake. We can thank God for Matt and for John and how God has graciously blessed his church over the years. Men, Some men have come, some have gone, but he has never left us to the prowling evil one who's out there. That's good news. Give thanks to God for that, that reality. And as unfit as we may be, <laughs> which is sometimes depressing and discouraging, God cares for you all. He has not left you to the Cretans. These men are humble, godly men who cling to the trustworthy word for their dear life. Well, the second thing that I want us to just think about as we look at this very negative picture of these Cretans and coming in and destroying the church, I think this is maybe more warning, but we ought always to be vigilant as we seek to elect new elders. There is nothing that the evil one desires more than to bring Cretans into the church and to establish his kingdom here, right? He wants to divide and conquer. He wants to disrupt and destroy. He wants to upset families in the church. And so we ought to be aware of that. As we evaluate potential men for ministry, remember the evil one's goal is to kill, to seek, kill, and destroy. At root is this, when you think about who is qualified, does the man hold to the trustworthy word? Remember at the very beginning of Titus, what we looked at last week, Paul defends his apostolic authority by this long, lengthy greeting when he says, These words, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at a proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Did you notice throughout that Paul is saying, I'm an apostle, I'm not lying. I'm bringing you the word of God, which is hope and eternal life. As you think about who God is calling to be leader here in this church. May he be, above all else, somebody who clings to this word of truth. That's what will protect you and keep you as God's sheep, as God's people. And then let this section be a warning. When we let go of the word, we let go of God. Well, letting go of the word is to let go of God. But second, and this is the, the positive or positive side, the, the, the qualifications for elder. I want us to remember this thing that I've been harping on now for the last little bit. Hold fast to the trustworthy word. This is a call for us as a church, but it's a call for those whom may, may God may be calling to the role of elder. What I'd like to do is to take each of the qualifications and briefly examine them because I realized even as we were wrestling with this in our community group is, is how hard it is sometimes to understand what the apostle means. What is it exactly you're saying, Paul? Um, and I want to go through it. So 
the first thing that we note before we even get to the qualifications is that everyone is to be above reproach. That's the number one thing. The elders are to be above reproach. He says it twice. In the very first beginning of sound is, if anyone is above reproach, so that's first, and then he says it again later in verse 9, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this idea at the end, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be above reproach? The first thing I would like to say is it doesn't mean that the man is perfect. If that's the case, then we ought to just close up shop. It's not possible. But it does mean that there, there, there is no uh, open uh, case against the man. In other words, here is a man who, for, the, for his part, as best as he is able, is following Jesus. Yes, he's a sinner. Yes, he's broken. But it, you can't make the case against him that he is a liar or he is uh, greedy, that this is a definition of who he is. Does that mean he never lies? I don't, I don't know if that's possible. Does it mean that he never, ever longs for what he does not have, that he doesn't covet something? Um, again, what, what it is, it's what defines their character, their person. Can a case be brought against them? They ought not, that ought not to be the case, that they are above reproach. The first qualification that we come to is that they must be a husband of one wife. Now, to put this in the Cretan context, um, sexual promiscuity was very common, right? In the Greco-Roman world, while they generally agreed that there should be one husband, they didn't have a polygamous society like some more ancient societies, they, they believed that there ought to be a husband and wife, but you might have many other uh, women all along the side. Over the course of church history, this has often been uh, used to say, if you ever remarry, say your spouse dies, or you uh, divorce, and you, or you were divorced, it was nothing of your own doing, because that's a whole other can of worms that we could bring up. But let's just say it was, in some sense, biblical, that, 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 that maybe your spouse left you, um, maybe there is some grounds for uh, remarriage. There's some debate on that point. But let's just, for now, let's just say it, you have a man who has been married a second time. Does that number necessarily disqualify him for marriage? Um, I would say it's not about the number, but it's about the ethic. Are you somebody who is wed to another and do you have somebody else on the side? Are you living a life that is not in accord with God's word, that you have a covenant relationship with your wife and that wife is your only? So setting aside all the questions of succession, the heart of this is are you a man who is committed to your wife? Some have argued that maybe this means they have to be married. I don't think that's the case. Paul, Jesus, uh, both of whom were unmarried, that would disqualify them in some sense. It wouldn't seem 
so logical. But here, I think the issue at hand is within the context of the church, there ought not to be even that hint of sexual immorality, particularly among the elders. Second, children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I know, I know how scary this text is as a parent. Um, And it seems to be saying, it seems to tell us that this requires all our children to have genuine saving faith. I don't think so. I don't think that's what it's arguing for. And I want to go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because in 1 Timothy 3, we get a little bit sort of more of a picture of what I think the text is saying. And, and by the way, in your, in your Bibles, you may even have a little, um, a, a little superscript um, on, this, on this note that, that points out that children are believers could also be read the word here for believers is the word for faith. It could also mean faithful. It could mean children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery. I just want to point that out. But if we turn over to turn over to First uh, Timothy chapter three, we have this similar list here of the qualifications for overseers, and I want to point out this particular one. Um, so in verse four. Of chapter 3 in 1 Timothy, it says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And even here in Titus, when it says, His children are believers or are faithful, it defines it. It says, And not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. What is Paul getting at? So first, I want to point out that it is only by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit working in the heart of my children that saves them. I don't save them. I share the love of Christ with them. I teach them the things of God. I lead them in the way of righteousness. I pray for them and I pray with them. And I, and I, I plead on God's mercy and His covenant promises that they would indeed trust and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, that's a work of God's divine grace. What Paul is saying here is, does this man lead and shepherd his household? Is he a man who disciplines his children and raises them in the Lord? Is he one who cares for the family and who manages the household? Or are his children just running wild doing whatever they want without care or concern? Are they going off and living debauched life and the parent has sort of hands-off approach? That's the question. And Paul, in, in Timothy, points this out to us. He says that, that when, when you consider this office, he must be able to manage his own household well with all dignity and keeping his children submissive. And he gives the reason in verse 5, he says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Maybe another way to put this is, the home is the training ground 
for these men. It's the place where they practice caring for and shepherding. And if they aren't doing that, if they aren't shepherding their children, if they're not leading them in the way of the Lord, if they're not disciplining them, then I think it's a red flag. It's a a red flag that says, what's going on? All right. Hopefully that was helpful. Um, The next thing that we notice here in the text is that they're called to be overseers, episcopos, bishop. Uh, Just as as a notation, I think this is function. This is what the elder does. He, he, he rules over. And not only is he called to be a, a, a ruler over, an overseer, but he's also called to be a steward. He's a steward, one entrusted as a manager of God's household. I've used at least four different terms now. Elder, shepherd, overseer, steward. Right? Elder, it's that office of, of the one who is to, to, to look out for and care for that which has been entrusted to him. Shepherd is that pastoral care. The, the shepherd, the good shepherd who goes out is the Lord Jesus, and we as under-shepherds come alongside the Lord in that work, and we shepherd the flock of God. The overseer is the one who, who manages, who cares for the whole, the, the, the church and all of its bits and parts, and has oversight and protects it. Um, and the steward is the one who is a manager. Different words getting at similar things. So the shepherd, overseer, steward, elder ought not to be arrogant. Ought not to be arrogant. What does it mean to be arrogant? Well, we all kind of know what it means to be arrogant. The word here can mean self-pleasing or self-willed. I I like this idea, self-promoter. One thing that Jesus taught his disciples was, when you, as a a disciple of mine, what you will do is you're going to go and you're going to lay down your life and you're going to serve. So what does Jesus do to illustrate this? He gets on his feet and he washes his disciples' feet. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. If you're looking for a man who is called, one who God might be calling to be an elder, he ought not to be puffed up. He ought not to be about himself, but he ought to be one who is willing to humble himself and serve. Not quick-tempered. One who is always at at the... just the littlest, slightest thing is just is launching on somebody, yelling at them. I, I have to say, when I was um, growing up, I had, I had many coaches because I played a lot of sports. And they were all different, different temperaments. Um, but I had one particular coach. And I hated, it was, it was in basketball when I was young. And I, I hated basketball because of this coach. We would mess up. And he would start screaming at us. Somebody, anybody have that experience? The littlest things would just set him off and he'd be yelling at us. I still love basketball, not because of him, but because of subsequent coaches. On the other hand, I had a coach for soccer, one of my mentors, somebody I look up to to this day. He was the most soft-spoken man. He never raised his voice. But when we messed up, we understood 
He'd just kind of look at us, and we were all crushed to the heart. It didn't take much. He was a gentle soul. Um, the man you're looking for ought to be a gentle soul. Not a drunkard, not addicted to wine. Not a wine bibber. Is that an old word, I guess? Um, not violent. It kind of goes with the anger piece. Some people, they lash out in anger, they also lash out physically. Again, this goes back to ruling your household well. There's nothing worse than having to deal, and I've had to deal with men in ministry who abuse their spouse or their children. There's nothing worse. Not greedy for gain. Uh, we're a small church. <laughs> There's no glory in, in this. Um, but if somebody just wants to kind of gain, to get ahead, to, to put it, ah, I'm a board member of this board, and I'm a board member of this board, and I'm over here, and, and they use it as sort of stepping stones to gain wealth and prestige and status and money. Ought not to be. I'll just say this um, with regard to ministry. Um, I, I, I'll say two things. One is, uh, it's awkward for me to talk about money as a pastor because I'm paid by the church, by you all, and your generous gifts. Um, and, and I'm well taken care of. Um, may it be that, there, that we as a church just in general, are, are always looking uh, to use our, what we have as far as money and resources to bless the poor, not to puff up the pastor. Please. I, I love gifts. Don't get me wrong, but I don't, I don't need it. So I just, just highlight this. If this is a, a mark. Um, not greedy for gain. Hospitable. Uh, do you open your home? Do they open their home? Are they warm and welcoming when somebody walks through the doors? Are they closed off and, and pushing? I remember there was one church I was at that there was a deacon, unfortunate deacon, who literally locked the door on somebody coming in. And I ran after that person because I said, what, you can't do that? I was a young intern. I was like, you can't do that. A lover of good. Do they love what's good? Self-controlled and prudent. Um, are they wise? Just or righteous or upright is the language here. Um, are they just? Or are they preferential in the way they treat people? If they're preferential and they're always saying, well, this person over here has money, we should look after them. And the person over here who is maybe on the, the poor end or has no real gifts to give, we're just going to ignore them. We really have to go after the people who are movers and shakers because then we'll have influence and power in the world. Are they preferential? Or are they just and righteous and upright? Are they holy? Do they guard themselves against all of the things of this world. 
And do they have master over themselves, over their appetites and their desires? There's, this is a long list. And as I come to the end of this list, and I get to verse 9, and it says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Um, I'm reminded of, of what our role is as elders. We're called not just to oversee the church, but to feed the church and shepherd the church with the word of God. But if men, we are not clinging to that word, how can we feed people with it? We have to be those who love God's word. Well, I come to the end of the list, and honestly, I, I feel personally undone. Not all of these things are maybe my sin, but many of them are. Things that I personally struggle with. And these two controlling thoughts are the only thing that give me hope. First, these men ought to be above reproach. They are not perfect, but they are those who no charge can be made against them on these things, on these matters. And I just remind you that I think as we look at these things, we should think about, are, are there defining features of a person that would disqualify them? If not, what are their gifts? Start writing them out. Think about who they are as persons. Oh, I saw so-and-so care for one of the little babies in the nursery. He just went up and grabbed that baby and cared for that baby to help that mom out. Or I saw so-and-so getting on his knees and helping out with the sound. Or I saw so-and-so talking to somebody about the cares and concerns and listening to them. Are they doing the work of elder? One of the things that um, I had the privilege of this past week was to go to a preaching little seminar down in Greenwich, Connecticut with Jerome and Isaac. And it was such a blessing, but it, it, was, it was painful too because we were going through the book of James. And in the book of James... It's all about sort of uh, be who you are, right? Don't be two-faced. Like, you know, you're either worldly or wordy, is the way he put it. You're either of the world or you're of the word. And, and don't be double-faced. If you're of the word, you can't be then going and doing the things of the world. And one of the things that he said as we were going through is he said, character. Imagine a church where character was the defining feature of the reason we looked for leaders, not competency. Not to say competency is unimportant, or he used the term instead of competency, magnetism, right? You want competent men, but more than that, you want godly men willing to lay down their lives and serve. Character over competency. But the two things that give me, because again, that, that give me hope is one, it is not about perfection, but it's about being above reproach. And then two, it's the gospel. Holding fast to the word. Here these men have to understand who they are before God. Broken sinners like the people they're ministering to, the shepherds around them. These are men who look at Jesus, the one who willingly laid down his life and bore the reproach of men. 
who willingly took upon himself what we deserved, reproach. He laid down his life for them. As an elder in Christ's church, that's what I have to cling to. As you look for men, that's what you want them to cling to. And as you consider your own heart, are you one who is holding fast to the gospel hope that yes, you are unworthy, but there is a worthy lamb who is slain, who has shed his blood for you, and that your hope is not set in your strength, but in the strength of the Lord. May the Lord himself build up our church and equip men for this work that we might, as a church, together grow in that godlikeness, in these qualities that we see here laid out for us. Let's pray.